In this episode, I spoke with Amanda Natividad about B2B content marketing, what makes content high quality, and fractional marketing directors. Amanda is the VP marketing at SparkToro, which is an audience research startup, and she's also a prolific creator and chef, among other things. So let's dive right into the episode. I want to start on the B2B marketing side and just kind of gauge what you're seeing. So obviously at SparkToro, you're working with all kinds of information. You probably do all kinds of fun little searches and you probably have interesting insights into what's going on audience-wise across B2B and marketing and things like that. I'm just curious if you're seeing any big patterns or shifts in the way that companies, especially B2B companies, are marketing right now. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of the things that are pretty unchanging, right? So let's kind of take care of this first, right? There, We're always going to need leads. We're always going to have some kind of email list. Like those are the things that are kind of going to always matter, right? It's, it's just some of the tactics that change now and then. Uh, something that I'm excited about and that I think we're going to see more of, we've been starting to see some of it, is really the shift towards I'm going to say most broadly organic marketing, right? I think more and more marketers are trying to kind of decrease their dependence on the Google Facebook duopoly. I think more and more people are excited about testing new kinds of marketing. And I think as a result, we're seeing more people do things under this sort of this umbrella of like organic marketing, for which I think a big part of that is a lot of creator marketing and a lot of like opportunities for where brands are partnering with individuals. We're seeing more faces of brands that go beyond the typical founder CEO. So I think a lot of those things are really exciting. I think we're going to be seeing more of that. And yeah. So diving into like the content side of this is an area where you spend a lot of time, you write a lot about this. So for anybody listening, go check out the SparkToro blog because it's a great resource on all things like content, audience, all that. But for from the B2B front, the biggest question always with B2B is how do we make content that's not super boring? And that's still a struggle. Most companies can't do it. What do you think that like great content actually looks like for a B2B brand in 2023? What are kind of the questions you should be asking yourself to arrive at great content? I think a really big part of it is just, can you on an emotional or some kind of visceral level feel your customer's pain? Like that's kind of what it boils down to, right? And I think in any kind of role or industry, whether it's B2B or B2C, there is pain to be felt, right? We as the marketers or the people who are selling this product, our aim is to take away this sort of pain that our customer is feeling. So I think the more that you find ways, use a marketer, you know, the more that you find ways to tap into that and to understand it, I think the better off you'll be in terms of creating content or creating marketing activities that speak to a lot of these pain points. So that's the, I think that's the major thing, right? I think boring is kind of subjective, right? Like I think if you can connect on a deep level with like a fintech customer problem and you understand like how painful it is to deal with a certain kind of finance issue, then I think there are a lot of compelling ways to go about that. And then I think you can even use some of the language of like, you know, like here's why it, here's why it sucks to have to apply for a new credit card or, you know, I don't know what that is, right? But something around that. I think it's just finding a way to sort of really feel that customer's pain and connect with it on a deep level. 
Is there any company that comes to mind or multiple companies in the B2B space that you actually feel are doing a good job of creating content that addresses these pain points and is worth reading, is interesting? Oh, gosh. Uh, that's a good question. Let's see. Who is really good at this right now? I'm so bad at like tracking things. <laughs> I want to say like Databox is really good at this because like all the all of Databox's content like from their employees right are so connected with like what their core customer feels and thinks of day to day. I think they're really good at that. They're really good at just tapping into what is on the minds of our customer base and how do we show them or like how do we connect with them on this level of like we feel this pain too or so with you so that's probably my favorite example right now on this idea of like quality content you recently wrote a piece about this basically saying quality content is an impossible thing to gauge it just means different things different people and we need kpis basically to measure if something is quality or not given that it's very subjective and you brought up some kpis like off-platform sharing. So like, you know, I think that's self-explanatory. Copycats, people that are imitating what you're doing as kind of a sign of respect. Quality of discussions as some examples of things you brought up. I'm just curious if you wouldn't mind diving a little bit deeper into some of these like qu content quality KPIs and what companies really should be looking for when they're spending this effort to create content. Yeah. So aside from what you said, I think some other really important ones to look at are like quality of discussions, right? Like you know, you're, I don't think I don't think everyone's going to have a perfect view into this, right? You're not going to know everything your customers are saying, but you can know some things like through social listening, through things like if you're hosting a webinar, how people are responding in the live chat, like if people are asking insightful questions, right? I mean, you know, the questions that go beyond like, are these slides going to be shared? Like the real questions of like, oh, can you clarify this? What about what about this for me? Like, what's your advice here? Like, that's symptomatic of good quality content, right? Or if you have a conference or some kind of event where you can kind of hear the chatter in the hallways, that's one. Because I think if you are creating content that ultimately supports high quality discussions, you probably are starting off with a good place of having good quality content. That's one. Uh, a couple of the other ones that I suggest people consider or look at is whether that content meets multiple stakeholders' needs. So in a very classic content marketing model, right, you have like an SEO driven blog, you have some keywords you go after, you measure success through traffic and search rank. Great. You can still do that, right? Like that, there's a time and place for that. But the other piece I would challenge marketers on is, well, what next? Do, is that traffic turning into conversions? If so, how many? Are you driving quality leads? If so, how many? Right. Like, how does this how does this tie together with pipeline or even just like, how does this tie in with the brand messaging? Like, is this helping to make some of product marketing's efforts more sustainable? Is there overlap here where like a lot of the content you're creating is also great fodder for like customer support type content where it's addressing paying customers needs? Like those are other models to consider, because if you're getting that much out of your content, it's a good sign that it's good quality. And then the last piece I'd recommend for people is whether that content inspires new programs, right? So a new program, I don't even mean like another blog post. I mean a whole new program, like whether a blog post series gives way to a podcast or a video series 
or whether it becomes a conference, like things that give way to whole new other programs for which that, that need some team support because you're basically showing how your content is producing new lines of business in that sense. Yeah, I think you do a great job at SparkToro of actually living kind of the things that you're saying here. And another thing that I that comes through really clearly is kind of this ethos of attribution is not perfect. Uh, not everything needs to be SEOable. Like you don't have to have perfect keywords for every single thing. I think you do a really good job of just creating content that is helpful to people. And it's very, it comes across very clearly. So kind of riffing on that, what would, what, how would you give the cliff notes of how you think through SparkToro's content strategy right now? Let's see. I guess I would think of it as like everything that we're doing, does it also do something else? Right? Like, does this thing accomplish multiple things? So, whether it's a blog, like if it's a blog post, it's like, okay, great. I got my blog post. How does this help fuel the email newsletter? How does this help our social channels? Or even on my personal side, how did, how was my personal brand fueling SparkToro's growth? So I just think about things as like, maybe it's even just thinking about things in flywheels. Like how does each thing become some kind of flywheel for some other type of marketing function? So that's kind of how I tend to think about it because I kind of feel like, I think ultimately I feel like if I'm only getting one small or one discrete use from something that I'm doing, it probably isn't a good use of time. So. In, in that sense, I feel like our bandwidth constraints as being a three-person company, that's where it kind of comes in handy, right? Where it's like, whatever I'm doing, I got to make sure it's a good use of time. Can you think of, off the top of your head, any examples of like content tactics that you've actually tried and then you just decided to scrap altogether? Oh, gosh. Let's see. Uh, I mean, I do have a lot of false starts with blog posts and that like I try to write something and then I'm, it's nothing. Or I have a paragraph and I'm like, eh, this was a tweet. This isn't anything. <laughs> Got it. So on, on the AI front here, I'm sure you have opinions. I'm sure you've used it and got some pros and cons, but especially SparkToro is kind of another interesting company through the lens of what you're doing with content. It's interesting to think through kind of the future of SEO as it pertains to AI, because I know that you're obviously more focused on putting out the best content possible. And if keywords can align, then great. But like that doesn't come across necessarily the SparkToro strategy is just go low volume or high volume, low competition keywords. But going forward, SEO and AI seem to almost kind of have this conflicting nature where you could see AI taking up the top of the SERP and just like totally bungling what SEO is built. I'm curious what you think the future of SEO kind of looks like going forward. I'm more curious what you think, because I think you know a lot more than I do about AI. But you know what? Honestly, like, I'm always excited to see the incumbents or the status quo get disrupted. I think it's exciting. I think it's fun. I'm all for change, right? So where I'm excited is, look, SERP or Google search engine results page, it's a shit show today. Right. You're looking for something. You go to Google to find the thing and then you have to wade through like five or six ads before you go to the thing you want. Like, I want that to get messed up. <laughs> you know, I do. And like, as it is now, the way that I'm using a lot of these AI tools, you know, these large language models, really, 
the way I'm using it is kind of for those basic SEO related needs uh, or not needs, but the SEO related behaviors. It's when I'm looking up stuff like, like, what do I need for this like bulgogi marinade again? And I'll like look, I'll look at like what ChatGPT has to say, but that's also because I already know how to make bulgogi marinade. <laughs> so I can look at it and go like, oh, that's wrong. That's wrong. Or like, oh, I wouldn't do that. You know, that kind of thing. But it's like, great, an answer, like an answer in like 75 words. That was what I wanted. So that's the kind of stuff that I think is that's better for the user. And I really hope for a lot of this SEO garbage to get disrupted. I agree. Yeah, there's a lot to be done there. Well, taking a step back, scoping out a little bit AI wise. What are the tools that you're using? Are you using ChatGPT? How is it integrating into your workflow, if at all? Not a lot for my workflow, per se. I use it more in my personal life. Like, I use it for, like, I use, like, ChatGPT or Bard or Bing Chat for, like, uh, writing or drafting impersonal communications. Like, if I'm putting out, like, a request for some quotes to some contractors, like, I use it for that. Uh, I use it for uh, meal prep. And again, this is partly because I already, I'm a pretty adept chef, a home cook. So like I might put it like, I have prepared quinoa, cucumbers and dill. Like what should I make for lunch? And it'll give me a suggestion like that. I like it. It's a good user experience because it's just text and I know how to navigate that. I'll do it for general like meal planning for the week. But I also use tools like lex.page and type.ai. These sort of, I mean, I for me, they are Google Docs replacements of like, beautiful minimalist text editors that have some AI capabilities, which help me as a writer kind of ideate faster, get some like quick feedback. I, I put, I'm putting feedback in quotes just in that it's like, it's a better than nothing editor, right? Like the best editor is always going to be yourself, right? But like absent that, like when you can't be your own unbiased person for a minute, uh, GPT capabilities can help be a good replacement for that. So I'll use it for like early for drafting uh, like blog content, but I'm not using it to like generate text for me. It's more of like, I'll write a piece, maybe I'll highlight a paragraph and go like, can you give me feedback on this paragraph? And it might identify some like wordy sentences or like weird sentence structure that I'm like, oh, that is kind of weird. I'll rewrite that. Or it might suggest headlines and stuff. So I find that useful. If you were looking at like a good blog that you've written recently and the amount of time it took you and everything, like all that considered, if that blog added up to a hundred percent, if you tried to write that purely with AI, what percent out of a hundred do you think it could get to in terms of quality? I don't know. I really think it would get to like 30%. I just, that's what I think. Cause I think it's going to be looking at like, I mean, the way it works is like, it's, it's a, it's statistics in action. Right. Like it's trying to just guess the most likely word combination that comes next. So I feel like it's not going to be that interesting. I think it can be helpful for like initial structure, uh, helping to remix or repurpose existing stuff. And I think it's valuable. I really want to like ask you, like, what do you think, though? Like, how are you using it for creation, if you are at all? Yeah, no, that that sounds about right. It sounds about right that uh, 30 percent, if you just gave it kind of the context you had to start with and that was all and you just ran with it that's probably all it could get to obviously 
if you really split it up into individual tasks, like section by section, I think you'd get a little bit closer, but there's obviously a level of humanity that has to be embedded in or else you're never going to get to that hundred percent. In terms of my workflows, it's, I use it for a ton of stuff, but never actually for writing. Like I'd, I'd never use it for writing anything that I would ever use. I use it for everything else. Ideation, uh, review, like I think it's pretty good at refining things and telling you if you just ask it, hey, I just wrote this whole thing. Tell me where it's bad or if there's errors or if I could be more succinct anywhere. And it's pretty good at that, but I would never actively write with it. All right. So I have a couple of questions uh, on the general marketing side here to wrap things up. Another article you wrote recently was kind of debating between like, should you do a use a fractional CMO or do you actually need just a fractional marketing director? That was an interesting point because like fractional CMO is almost always the only title that fractional goes with. So it's an interesting thing to to bring up. And I just, I'm curious how you make the distinction of what's the difference? Like a fractional marketing director, why is that more realistic? What would that person do? Who should be using one? Yeah. So, you know, in this piece I wrote, maybe I'll say like, so, so I wrote this piece, right, on like why you might need a fractional marketing director instead of fractional CMO. And it struck a chord with quite a few people in that, I mean, it, it was the, the reach of this blog post is greater than I thought it would be. Like, I thought I was just kind of saying something that was on my mind, but a lot of people gravitated towards it and more people than I anticipated agreed with it, which surprised me. I just kind of, I just thought I would get a lot more people who are saying like, you know, what you're talking about, like you're dumb, like fractional CMOs are the best, you know, I, and I wasn't saying that it's bad, right? So one, I, and I'm highlighting this only because like, I think this speaks to one, a market need for fractional marketing directors. And two, probably also speaks to the fact that perhaps there are a lot of fractional CMOs in title that are actually doing the work of a fractional marketing director, which is to say that they might be doing a lot more tactical stuff, which is fine, right? And that's kind of the case that I'm making where I think like, I think when a company or a startup, whatever, thinks that they need a fractional CMO, what they, what they actually need a fractional marketing director is, I think what they actually need is somebody who has quite a bit of experience, who's seen a lot of stuff, who's led teams, also be willing to roll up their sleeves and actually get the job done. That's basically what I'm speaking to. And I think there are a lot of fractional CMOs who are doing that, but where I might challenge that title is, a CMO shouldn't be doing that, right? A chief marketing officer should not be the person who's like writing blog posts or scheduling meetings for influencer partnerships or things like that. Like that's not the job of a chief marketing officer. That's more the job of a marketing manager or marketing director. So I think overall, I would say like, I think there is a need for people to work with senior marketing leaders, but also for these leaders to be very tactical in nature. Last one here, this to be whether it's things you're using or more likely probably things you use for SparkToro. What's your tech stack of MarTech tools that is just crushing it for you right now? The tools that you could not live without. Oh my gosh, this is a, I am so boring. So my answer is SparkToro, of course. Oh, okay, I'll just say my day-to-day. Uh, Notion, I use that for like all my note-taking now. I use it to say organize. We also use it for, to maintain SparkToro's social media calendar. Use that. Uh, 
Lex type.ai and what's the other thing? Oh, Savvy Cal. I like Savvy Cal for calendar management because you can overlay multiple calendars on it. So if you have a personal calendar and work calendar that's reflected in your availability, you can also have like, you know, general available days for certain meetings. Uh, you can have personalized links for people. And yeah, that's, I think that's, I think that's it. 